Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Mike Powell joining us now, BlackRock Investment Institute, Global Chief Investment Strategist. Mike, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. The guide for you, does a market participant stay up and watch this debate, trade on it off the back of it, based on who you think won? How do you go through this, Mike? What's the process? So one of the things we've been saying throughout the election season is just how stable the polls have been, even in the face of, obviously, historic events in 2020 in in the United States. And so I think as it relates to your question, you know, Yes, you know, insofar as it's one of the last big events before the presidential election, uh, it could matter. But our basic thesis is that, that this race continues to look awfully stable. And our advice to investors is, you know, look through uh, any volatility that the race itself generates. Look to the long term, look to the fundamentals and, and add to high conviction positions if you do see that volatility. Mike Powell, you were weaned on Blanche Flower Economics at Dartmouth College. And just a simple idea of wage dynamics and the separation of societies, which which is known and not only what Danny Blanche Flower has done, but others at Dartmouth uh, Economics. How divided is this nation now and what does it mean for investors? So, you know, I'd say the nation, you know, does look divided across a couple of dimensions. Obviously, uh, the political polarization is at historic highs. But I think as well, when we talk about economics, when we talk about markets, you know, I know we've talked a lot about the K-shaped nature of the recovery and the degree to which, you know, even in aggregate, as the economy is surprised to the upside, that's a much different experience for people in different parts of this economy. And I think that's why as we look ahead, you know, this question is you've raised around fiscal stimulus, this question of is the is the recovery going to become more sustained is going to be an awful big part of the market narrative as we go into 2021. Mike, a lot of people are believing in this yield curve steepening story, higher uh, longer term yields based on this idea that we will get some sort of fiscal support bill, perhaps this year, definitely next year. How high can 10 year yields really rise before the Fed steps in? We think this is a, a huge issue, uh, and I would say our, our view on it is perhaps a little distinct. I mean, I think we heard from Governor Brainerd yesterday uh, that the Fed in, intends to act along the entire yield curve. Uh, we see that as a, as a signal of, of exactly that, that the Fed is going to be pretty uh, closely watching the, the nominal curve and not allowing a tremendous amount of steepening to us the kind of more compelling uh, reflation dynamic is uh, to expect to see the nominal curve uh, stay more or less stable to a little higher, but but real rates tips to rally even more considerably. So real rates even more negative, and that has pretty important implications for the dollar, for risk assets uh, globally. So we think that's the really important dynamic here. Well, Mike, that makes it profoundly difficult to own financials, and it makes it even easier to stick with what's working Right now, what do you say back to the people that are talking up the rotation in the equity market in America? So I'd say two things. And I think we have been talking about a a type of rotation in the market, but it's been less uh, growth to value and more large to small. We do think that the growth dynamics that a a reflationary fiscal stimulus type path could put in could bring about that type of rotation. But agree with you that, 
you know, in a world where we see real rates lower, uh, when we see uh, the the path of, of of the dollar potentially lower as well, that's also a pretty attractive world for uh, for uh, equities outside of the United States, risk assets outside of the United States, including places like emerging markets. So I'm looking right now, the low of negative real yields for 10-year treasuries. In other words, the amount of money you're losing to invest in longer-term treasuries based on the rate of inflation uh, hit a record negative 0.11% in September. How low could this go? Well, I don't want to put any precise numbers on it, but I do think the important point is if you look at um, places that have combined kind of significant ongoing monetary accommodation plus fiscal policy, that the place where that has really manifested itself is in is in real rates. I mean, this is what we saw uh, in Japan. This is what we've seen in other places that have brought this combination to bear. And I think that's where we see uh, the pressure uh, from those two forces coming together in policy really manifesting itself in markets. Mike Powell from BlackRock. Mike, just fantastic to catch up as always. Joining us from the BlackRock Investment Institute. Jeffrey Yu is with BNY Mellon. He is a senior strategist and is wonderfully eclectic about linking foreign exchange dynamics into everything else that's out there. We're thrilled he could join us right now. Jeff, I want to talk about the persistent, stronger renminbi, the Chinese yuan. Is that managed by Beijing or is that the market speaking? Um, a bit of both you know, right now. So Beijing's managing it less. I think you know, that's been clear for the market to see. So the market now is trying to see, OK, you're not managing it. Let's see how far we can push be stronger before you actually start to want to manage it a bit more. Because this is getting uncomfortable for China. Rates are still um, quite high if you look at uh, where the bond curve is. Um, sure, you know, there are some you know, big um, activities in, in some of the domestic ITO market coming through. But at the end of the day, you know, one strong spot has been exports, right? but a stronger currency that could eat into exports. So the market is going to be testing the PBOC tolerance up ahead. How does renminbi diffuse, leak, if you will, to the other currencies of the Pacific Rim and indeed over to U.S. dollar? Well, there are two ways this can happen. One positive, one perhaps less positive. The positive side is stronger renminbi, stronger purchasing power for Chinese, you know, the fabled Chinese consumer that the world desperately needs to come through. Then they have more purchasing power they can spend and lift the economy around them. However, you know, if China actually starts to get worried about this and starts to push back, starts to intervene, uh, then Korea, Japan, Taiwan, they're going to get nervous as well. We don't want a localized currency war. But for the time being, I think the renminbi is giving everyone else a lot of space, especially Korea. You know, that's one uh, where uh, I think the market is quite fond of as well. So, Jeff, it comes down to tolerance. Let's talk about levels. Dollar China, 668 right now. We saw 664 earlier in the session. What kind of level do you have in mind? Uh, well, I think uh, when we get to, say, you know, 650, you know, that kind of a level, uh, the PBOC may need to take a double take. But let's go back to 2014, 2015. When did the PBOC really start to talk down the renminbi? We'll talk about it being, quote, unquote, fair valued. You know, that is the key phrase from Yigang, who is now the governor. There we were heading towards in the 610. People were talking about it, breaking six and heading into five. Nowhere near there yet. All the... PBOC leadership, they, spoke, they were on the wires yesterday. No one uttered a single syllable about the renminbi. So it's telling you these levels right now, they're happy with it to continue to advance. Down to 650 then, Jeff. Let's build on this. The derivatives of this trade, stronger China, stronger currency. People have been loading up on copper, bidding up the copper price. Out of those trades have been attached to that stronger Chinese currency. What do you think is vulnerable at the moment, Jeff? 
so from a positioning point, Steve, we've already seen the Aussie adjust a bit, right? So, but for copper, so for Chilean pesos, the Aussie dollar, I actually think in particular Aussie is not that vulnerable. I would like it to actually move forward a bit after the RBA figures out its policy path. If you are an oil-related currency, I think that that's where you don't want to own the China beta because all the comments are from the leadership next year and then next week they announce the next five-year plan. China wants to go green. China wants to move away from fossil fuels as well, go to early carbon neutrality and then start to shrink its carbon footprint. So that isn't really a good story for fossil fuels. So you saw go long iron ore, you go those proxies, um, but for um, oil and energy and the rest, I'm not so sure. Okay, so the flip side of the strong UN, of the strong copper call, is the weak dollar call. What could potentially be the catalyst to further the weaken, uh, to further weaken the dollar from here? Well, I think a massive reallocation story, and we're talking medium to longer term, irrespective of what happens to the election, I think that is in place you know, right now. You look at the underlying bid for Chinese government bonds. I mean, look at the yields right now. At, three, uh, at 315, 320 on a hedge basis, it's um, actually they're quite solid as well, let alone unhedged flow. So as long as China continues to grow and the rest of the world and the U.S., underperforms on growth. I think that reallocation story into Chinese assets, into Asian assets, which is outperforming, I think that will undermine the dollar. It's not the usual suspect, though. Markets want to be short dollars against that. The renminbi, Korean one, they're looking at Taiwan dollar and the rest. And against the euro, sterling, not so much right now. They're kind of in the same boat. All right. In the short term, though, there is the potential for mm. underpricing a contested election, underpricing mm. what Sabas Boas Weinstein called credit chaos that he's predicting around the U.S. election. Does the dollar strengthen in that type of scenario? Um, so volatility is going to be key there and one of the drivers. But if we go back to a March kind of scenario where market just scrambles for liquidity, then um, then probably it will be a dollar positive story. But having said that, all of the facilities established you know, by the Federal Reserve in March, you know, they are still in place or they can be reactivated very, very quickly. Right? So I don't think it's going to be as severe as we saw in March. And also just be wary of what you want to own the dollar against. Dollar yen downside, dollar Swiss downside, people might want to own those trades as well as election hedges. How much is the UN strengthening on the heels of a Biden win of the expectation that's being baked into markets? Um, I don't think that is a catalyst you know, right now. It's more you know, on the chi China alone, its own economy, its own numbers are actually strengthening um, uh, flow. And also, you know, with the asset allocation, you know, with what's going on in the equity market, big tech IPOs coming up and further opening of the bond market. It's that underlying institutional reallocation to China, which has actually been building for some time now. And again, I think it's moving independently of the polls. Now, if the trade relationship you know, can be, let's just say, uh, less chaotic over the next few years, that's going to be positive for China. But I think that'll be positive for the U.S. and the world as well, because global trade starts to normalize somewhat. So I don't see any inconsistencies with, say, good U.S. markets and good Chinese markets. But for now, I think it's a China standalone story. Jeff, final question from me. You've always got a favourite trade. What is it right now? Uh, so, you know, right now, again, I like the China proxies. I want to own Aussie. I want to own a Korean one. And on the other side, probably Sterling is my favourite funder right now. I think the BOE's got it wrong. I think they need to do a lot more up ahead. What Sunak announced today, not enough. So I want to add to my Sterling shorts. A seller of Sterling, a buyer of the China proxies. Jeff, great to catch up, sir. Jeff Yu of BNY Mellon, thank you.
This is a joy. I, I, I said to the wonderful staff the other day, can you drag the Admiral down and uh, let's get him in there and drag, uh, drag the him down. We found down. him. You know, we found him. He's like, you know, he's, he's what doing what he's doing in a pandemic. So James Trevitas joins us here before an election. We should point out that the last time around, he was discussed as a vice president, a vice presidential caliber for Secretary Clinton. We're thrilled that he could join uh, today. I am thunderstruck. Admiral Stravitas, by the lack of discussion of our military in this campaign, what happened? We have uh, an entirely internal focus, Tom, and I think we all know that uh, the pandemic, the economy, getting our teeth straightened, everything is looking into the economy these days. And as a result, um, events continue to move in the real world, China, Russia, North Korea, Uh, on and on, Um, they're swimming around uh, waiting for the results of this election. And we need to be mindful. And I think coming out of the election, Tom, um, these Mm -hmm. issues, these international issues are going to bubble to the fore. Well, those international issues are there. And obviously this election can go one of two ways. If I presume a second administration, Trump will be maybe like the first administration, fine. Mm-hmm. But there is a mystery to a Biden administration. What would you presume would be his extension to the Pentagon and his extension to state? First of all, look for re-engagement in the international scene. That means working more closely with NATO. That means coming back into the Paris Climate Accords. That means uh, nailing down a strategic arms limitation treaty with Russia. Uh, it means putting additional pressure on China in the South China Sea. That's something I think both administrations will do. And above all, it'll be a very clear-eyed view of Russia and the ongoing turbulence that Russia generates in the international system. So two different paths, I think. Uh, lastly, I'll say You'll probably see the Biden administration try and cut a new deal with Iran, uh, returning to a nuclear arms deal, but bringing in some additional elements. Um, so I think it'll be more reengagement in the world, uh, more alignment with our allies, and a bit more focus on uh, Iran, North Korea, China, and Russia. Speaking of Iran, uh, yesterday the top U.S. spy chief accused Iran mm-hmm. of making direct efforts in uh, inter- interfering with the U.S. election. What do you make of some of the interference claims so far and in terms of who wants who to win the election? Uh, clearly, the nations I just mentioned, particularly China, Russia, and Iran are involved in attempting to manipulate the election. Iran doesn't have a lot of capability, uh, but they would probably rather see a Biden administration on the theory that uh, Biden administration will go to the negotiating table. Um, China, I think, uh, would prefer at this point, they've been back and forth, but I think at this point they would prefer a Biden administration simply Mm. because less turbulence, less Uh, back and forth. I think Russia clearly would favor a Trump administration because uh, not that they have particular love for Donald Trump, but they love the division in the country. With your father's service to the nation and the Marine Corps, and particularly his tour of duty uh, as a Greek American in the Levant, your comment, uh, Admiral, on uh, Turkey and the upset of Cyprus in the Eastern Mediterranean. 
Turkey is making a series of bad decisions lately under President Erdogan. They're pushing too hard over oil and gas, and they're generating real backlash, not just from Greece, but from Cyprus, Israel, Egypt. Secondly, they're backing Azerbaijan in this uh, nonsense war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And thirdly, they're pushing into Libya. They're on the wrong side of almost every issue from a U.S. perspective at the moment. There's one way to start a book, folks, and there's any number of wonderful books that Stravitas has done. I, of course, mentioned uh, his leader's bookshelf is really a must. A must. I threw it at Lisa's kids the other night and said, just shut up and read. Just start with Sherman. Knocked him right out. Start with Sherman, the Civil War, and uh, learn about Robert E. Lee. There is, Admiral, a 17-year-old out to sea. And it was in 1972, you had the courage to come out of Naval Academy in 1976. And trust me, folks, at that time, it was not a popular uh, tour of duty. And then you come over to what we've just witnessed with Tom Hanks on Greyhound and the North Atlantic run. What was your thought moving from a 17-year-old kid on the Jewett in 1972 back to Mr. Hanks, 1941? Um, That... Uh, film is fabulous, but it's based back to books. It's based on an even better book called The Good Shepherd by C.S. Forster. Mm-hmm. And that was a book I read as a teenager about those destroyers and those operations. And, you know, you can drop a plumb line from that young Jim Stavridis to being the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. It's all about books and reading and the experiences we have in life. You put them together, you can do anything. Well, then look at the future wow. of the Navy now. I mean, take Forrester and all the romance. Patrick Patrick O'Brien, folks, yes, I've read all 21 editions of O'Brien, et cetera, et cetera, and the honor of speaking to Gabelli and Cronkite about it. Great. Okay. The next Navy, can that 17-year-old kid in 2021 going out of San Diego, can he have the same vision you had? I think so. And uh, our Navy will be more technological, certainly, more cyber, more unmanned vehicles, more integration with special forces. But the same fundamentals of going down to the sea in ships and sailing where millennia of mariners have gone before will still capture uh, young American men and mm-hmm. women. I, I, I think the Navy will be a huge part of our future. And in particular, Tom, back to China. The Navy's role in the South China Sea, pushing yeah. back on Chinese opportunism there. Yeah, Mr. Vitas, thank you so much. Before this election, of course, uh, his former work with NATO, with Carlisle, and of course, I really want any number of the books, but where I took that out of that great opening, Sea Power, the History and Geopolitics of America and the Navy as well. On the pandemic, Lisa and I have been following the deaths, the cases, but there's also those in recovery. Here's Jason Farley, uh, professor of nursing at Johns Hopkins University. We're seeing continued emerging data. There was a recent publication in the Journal of the American Medical Association, highly respected journal, showing that they followed patients after their initial onset of symptoms for up to two months after they initially became sick. And they found that patients' fatigue was the most common symptom, but they also had lingering symptoms from their respiratory system, so cough and some some difficulty breathing at times. Some patients, although a smaller proportion, less than 20%, still had problems with taste and smell. So I think we definitely are seeing some subgroups of people who have longer symptoms. 
Jason, just to add to that, what have we learned about reinfection? Yeah, we continue to see cases of, small numbers of cases, let's be clear, but small numbers of cases of patients who we've identified have recovered from the infection and have a documented negative test, in some of the cases repeatedly negative, and then have subsequently developed coronavirus again. Um, it's, it was always within the realm of possibility. We talked about it on this show and in others. Um, that that would possibly occur. And now we're just seeing small numbers of cases where that information is growing. Jason, what's the latest on the infectiousness of children? Initially, uh, there was a theory that perhaps they were not infectious. Those of us who have children said that can't possibly be since they are vectors of disease. Now the <laughs> idea is that they can spread the virus. How are we looking in terms of how they compare with the degree of spreading it versus ad adults? Yeah, so, uh, well, there are a couple of points there. So, so in terms of how, how good a child is at spreading compared to an adult, you know, really they have the, uh, as equal a probability of transmission depending on their viral load and how much virus they have and, and then how much contact they have. So, so that's the first thing. Um, we were wrong initially about them being less spreaders. You know, with, with certain infectious diseases, with small kids in particular, like the really little ones, um, they, their cough is a little weaker. It's not as forceful. So you would think of, like, you think of pig pen and the cloud of dust that goes around them. You know, that, that cloud of dust around the children is a little smaller than around an adult. So, so there's some data to support that they may be able to spread aerosols a little less far. But overall, they carry a similar amount of virus and therefore are as equally infectious as uh, their adults, counterparts, or family. Jason, just to round out the interview, let's try and finish on a positive note. The improvement in therapeutics. We're all looking at the case count. We're looking at hospitalizations again. Jason, walk me through therapeutics. How much has improved over the last six months or so? Yeah, so right now we've got, um, you know, a definitely a glimmer of hope. So the, most of the world is now using remdesivir with or without dexamethasone. Um, so with those two agents, and it all depends on whether or not you need ventilation or oxygenation, and that's how the recommendations around the world are, are moving forward. Uh, people who need oxygen get dexamethasone or remdesivir, and then people who need mechanical ventilation likely get both. There was a recent study that just came out from the WHO that's still under peer review that calls to question, again, the mortality benefit, the death benefit of remdesivir. But we had already had good data that showed that remdesivir did not reduce death. It reduced symptom burden. So, so again, another study that seems to be similar to what we already know. So what we're seeing is cases of patients having greater access to these treatments, which is also going to help us reduce um, ultimately the mortality level as we can scale up these interventions. Someone with knowledge. That is a good thing in silence. Professor Farley, encyclopedic on the care of people. Professor of nursing, Johns Hopkins University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.